Welcome to episode 38 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And once again, we are joined by Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. The only good podcaster is a dead podcaster. Sorry, I'm looking at the cover of our comic here today and and getting excited to talk about some Kree and Skrulls. Oh yes, the Kree-Skrull War from the original run of the Avengers, issues 89 to 97. Written by Roy Thomas. Penciled in order of appearance by Sal Buscema, Neil Adams, and John Buscema. Although Neil Adams does more penciling than any of the other contributors. Inked by Sam Granger, George Russo, Sal Buscema, Tom Palmer, as well as a little bit by Neil Adams and Alan Weiss. Tom Palmer seems to be the most common one. Now, Marvel was not crediting colorists at this time, but I believe by this point in Neil Adams' career, he was insisting on doing his own coloring. So I believe he is one of the colorists on here, and we'll talk about how Neil Adams landed the job along the way. Lettered by Sam Rosen, Mike Stevens, and Artie Simak. Edited by Stan Lee. Cover dates ranging from June 1971 to March 1972, with release dates ranging from April 6th to December 14th, 1971. If I can jump in... Flo Steinberg pronounces it Simic. Okay, she would know better than I would. <laughs> so we'll go with Artie Simic on this and any other podcast you've heard me discuss. <laughs> I, I heard that because uh, you can hear in the early days of the Mary Marvel Marching Society, one of the things that you got was a little record of Stan Lee and Flo and other people in the office talking about just, just being silly and talking about what it's like to be in the bullpen. The only person in the bullpen who does not appear on the recording as Steve Ditko because he did not want to have himself recorded electronically in any shape, fashion, or form, which is why photos of him are so rare also. But anyway, so you hear a lot of voices and you hear a lot of names, and Flo Steinberg does get to be the one to say Art Simic's name. And so ever since then, that's how I try to say it. Okay. I'll try to keep that in mind because I'm sure his name will appear again. But yeah, the Avengers 89 through 97, we are smack in the middle I guess towards the second half, but, you know, Roy Thomas's run on the Avengers that he picked up in the 30s, the late 30s, no, early 30s. Gosh, I should look this up. Before I try to start saying sentences, I should really know what I'm going to say ahead of time. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is Roy Thomas had a nice long run on the Avengers, and here we are talking about it. Yes, we're talking about it again. Those of you who've been listening for a while do know that uh, John and I discussed issue 57, Introducing the Vision. Yes, and this story has some very significant developments for that character, so it's almost a, a second phase to the saga of the Vision. It is, and it has something in common with the last issue we discussed, uh, with Amazing Spider-Man in terms of the unspoken love between characters, but we'll get into that as well. And while we were talking, I did look it up. Roy Thomas began his run on Avengers with issue 35. Okay, and he went past 100, so we actually are, we actually are toward the end of his run. And then Steve Englehart picks up, I think, immediately after. But there's so much of what we think of as the Avengers that was formed and fashioned by Roy Thomas on his run here. And the Kree Scroll Wars, it's from 1971 into 1972, as far as public uh, cover dates go. And storytelling in comics was very different at the time. You could get stories that began in one issue and may or may not end at the end of the issue. They may go into the next one. And that issue might also have a cliffhanger, but not necessarily of the same story. Like, 
you might wrap up the tra- the trauma and suspense from the previous issue, have some downtime in your narrative, and then start up a new threat and a new plot arc that also cliffhangers at the end of your issue. And so you would have open-ended storytelling in the Bronze Age, but not necessarily of a single saga. Fantastic Four did a lot of that. Yeah, it's sort of a lot of serialized storytelling, including the, the radio shows in the 40s and 50s. The 1940s Superman radio show used that a lot. So in the 15-minute episodes, you'd have 10 minutes wrapping up the previous story, a spot for whatever Kellogg's product they had to push that week, and then five minutes starting the next serial story. Right. But this is, and, and this starts out feeling like that same sort of thing. It's not until you get to 97 and you look back at where you came from that you realize that this was one huge arc because the story does not steadily build towards its climax. It takes a few twists and turns in different directions that don't seem to be related until you find out they all are. Yeah, yeah. This was, as you said, it was an era where extended stories were rare. And a lot of that was because of the distribution model for comics. You didn't have dedicated comic shops yet. Those mm-hmm. would come close to 10 years later or within this decade. This is the start of the 70s. They started near the end of the 70s. So what you had were, you know, you had a lot of readers writing in saying, please don't do extended stories because Fantastic Four would do a three-parter and their local shop that they were buying it from, the convenience store, grocery store, whatever, didn't bother stocking part two or part three. So you'd have some reader complaints that they couldn't get the whole story. Yeah, it was still very much a bone of contention. And I remember... Reading the letters columns, reading the bullpen bulletins, Stanley would keep saying, yeah, we're going to try to keep, we're going to try to make done in ones more common. We're going to try to limit our continued stories. And he would even say flat out, okay, from here on, no more continued stories. The very next issue would have a cliffhanger. Yeah. Because they just couldn't, they're, they're storytelling. They just, the way of telling stories was changing and finishing a story in 20 to 22 pages just wasn't easy. Not to even mention finishing a story in 8 to 13 pages, which had been the standard fare 10 years earlier. Yeah, it was getting harder and harder to do if you're going to have any character moments, and that was largely Marvel's bread and butter. It's easy to tell a story where a stock character with no depth beats up the bad guy and goes home. And maybe has like a single scene of personal life or personality come out that lasts like three panels. If you read the first, say, five or six issues of The Avengers, character work would be, you know, one full speech balloon in one panel. that is the the tell-don't-show kind of storytelling, because that's all they had room for. At this point, uh, Neil Adams, who had done a lot lot of penciling on this, was already a bit of a superstar over at DC. He is sometimes credited with bringing Batman back from the brink of cancellation from working with him on Brave and the Bold. Uh, Whether Batman sales were really that poor, and whether it was just Neil Adams that brought him back, that's open to debate. But Neil Adams certainly boosted the sales dramatically. Yeah, I've heard that Batman was on the verge of cancellation both before and after the TV show. Yeah, and it was Marvel actually went to woo Neil Adams over. And as we discussed when we talked about Amazing Spider-Man 50, it was quite common for people to use, you know, pseudonyms or pen names. Neil Adams refused to do that. So he was one of the first guys that publicly worked for both companies. I mean, even Jerry Siegel, who had created Superman, wrote for The Human Torch and Strange Tales under a pseudonym. Right. Adams was saying, no, I've been investing in my name. I've had fans who know this name. I'm going to use my name if I'm going to work for you at all. So Marvel made that work. And one of the reasons Neil Adams wanted to work with them is because DC was, you know, their style of storytelling was very much in the control of the writer. So the writer would dictate, this is your panel arrangement, these are your perspectives, this is what people see. So the penciler's job was not to create their the penciler's vision of the script, 
it was to reproduce the writer's written description of the script on the page. And they were more pencil pushers and less creative. Whereas Marvel used what's known as the Marvel method, even though they didn't invent it, and they used it primarily to keep Stan Lee from going nuts when Frederick Wortham published Seduction of the Innocent, and all of a sudden they fired all the writing staff because they had a six-month... Stan Lee did not want to miss a deadline, so he made all his creative teams work six months ahead, and the Seduction of the Innocent storm lasted more than six months. Mm. So all of a sudden he had to write everything. So the only way he could do it was by hiring artists who could tell a story on their own, handing them short outlines, having them draw the story their way, and then filling in dialogue. And that was a method that really excited Neil Adams. But if you read his introduction to the X-Men Visionaries books, you'll see that he'd never worked that way before and was kind of scared to do it. And I figured if he's going to fall flat on his face, he doesn't want to do it on something major. And Marvel kept pushing him to the Avengers because that was their number one selling title at the time, right? That was their sales juggernaut. And he said he didn't, if he's going to fail, he didn't want to fail that publicly. He asked what was their lowest selling title. The answer was X-Men, which was shocking when he wrote the foreword to this in the X-Men Visionaries Neil Adams volume, which is where I read the story because... Avengers were not selling well, and the X-Men were kicking their butts left, right, and center, and had been right. for almost 20 years. Yeah, if you look at the Avengers and the X-Men, they've had an interesting little back-and-forth dance. Because yeah. the Avengers started, I think, from day one, the Avengers was a stronger title than the X-Men. And it's and even though it, it, it meandered in quality in the it, you know late Lee, early Roy Thomas issues, it still stayed on top and, and, and took off eventually. And became, like you said, the sales juggernaut. And then you get into the, you cross over from the late 70s and the early 80s. And Avengers is still strong. So much of Marvel was strong in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So much good stuff there. It's almost like Marvel's second golden age. But X-Men, I think, was was topped out, topping out Avengers. And by the time you get to the 90s, even though X-Men's quality is so weird there, they're definitely above the Avengers. Oh, yeah, they were outselling them left, right, and center. There's no question about that. But then you get back to modern day, and Avengers has once again become the leading franchise. Yep. And that may or may not have to do with Marvel struggling with Fox, but who knows? Yeah. I don't know if it's so much their struggle with Fox as the fact that Disney and Marvel have a better understanding of how to bring these characters to film than Fox does. So whether it's because they're fighting or whether it's just because Disney and Marvel are making better movies, either way. Yeah. So Neil Adams started on the X-Men, and Stanley agreed to do that on the condition that after doing a certain run on the X-Men which they did by extending and postponing the cancellation date, that he would come back and do the Avengers. Because I figured if we're investing in you, we want you on our flagship title. So once you've proven to yourself you can work this way, we want you over there. So they extended the final date of X-Men. So instead of canceling it in three issues, they gave Neil Adams, I believe, eight issues total. There was a fill-in along the way. Uh, but he ended up penciling it and brought enough back that there was enough interest that X-Men stayed for about 35 or so issues from issue 67 to 92 or 93, right before Giant Size number 1. 93. Yeah, 93. For that run, it was a reprint title, reprinting the stories that predated Neil Adams that a lot of people hadn't read but were interested in because they enjoyed the title under Neil Adams. Chris Claremont and Len Wein, as well as Dave Cockerman and John Byrne, were interested in working on the X-Men because of the Neil Adams era. That's what got their attention, too. Interesting. But at any rate, that's where Neil Adams came into Marvel and how he ends up taking over this book, but three issues in to this story arc. I don't have anything prepared about Sabi Sema. I do know him from his Spider-Man years, and this is significantly before that. I want to say this is at the very, you know, not at the very beginning of his career, because he's done enough small work that they've, they've trusted on bigger titles like the Avengers. 
but he he came in for being the younger brother of John Buscema, who was a significantly successful artist with Marvel. And Sal Buscema did a lot of really great things, but it, he'll he'll always, to me, be the Spider-Man artist that I, I know and love so well. Yeah, he was a good one. For me, the, those others I'd put higher, but we could talk about that in a Spider-Man podcast. Yeah, because I mean, I'm not saying he's top, but he, he is one of my favorites. But yeah, so Crazy and Scrolls, Aliens, yo. Yeah, we might as well get into the, the plot synopsis. Now, this, I mean, as John said, it, it's structured oddly. This was the time when you couldn't guarantee you have two or three, more than two or three parts. So even though this is a nine-issue story, it's not clearly a single nine-issue saga until, as John said, you hit issue 97. Internally, it's structured almost like, it, it's almost like runs now, where you'd have a six-issue story arc, but they all fit together. So the Hickman run on Fantastic Four had very blank story arcs, but when you read it all in one sitting, it's very clearly something that was designed to be, you know, put together as a single coherent whole. We can talk about the shape of that story as we kind of go through the synopsis and where things feel like a break, but then turn out not to be. Yeah, because it's, I think in some ways the most relevant parallel is the first season of Babylon 5, which feels like, you know, practically 22 standalone stories. And if you watch the entire series and then go back, you go, oh yeah. These are all pieces of the puzzle. The puzzle's just so big, you don't know you're looking at pieces of the puzzle because they're so far apart. They, they don't appear to be part of the same image until it's all said and done. So we start with the only good alien, in which Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Vision uh, appear to be trying to capture and contain Captain Marvel for reasons that are not immediately clear. And they do so, you know, they're claiming that they're friends, but Captain Marvel doesn't believe them. And between Marvel's temper and Quicksilver's temper, they come to blows fairly quickly. And, you know, Wanda's hex power and with the help of Rick Jones, they do manage to take him down. And they take him down largely because Rick Jones had the element of surprise on him, which would be a big shock to those reading Captain Marvel, because prior to this, Captain Marvel and Rick Jones were sort of almost sharing an existence in this realm. Either Captain Marvel would be in Marvel 616 and Rick Jones would be in the negative zone or vice versa. Usually Rick Jones, but they could swap places for three hours max. Another element of here is that Captain Marvel hasn't been in publication for a while. His series had kind of petered out in 1970. And so not only be a shock to see Rick Jones and Captain Marvel separated here, but it's also like you haven't seen the character in so long. So something could have happened. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of mystery in here. You do see that, you know, Rick Jones, he did it because of his trust for the Avengers, but he's not happy about having blasted Captain Marvel. But they do bring him in, and some scientists are there because, you know, it's a call for desperate measures. So apparently the separation of them, which took place as a side effect of a Fantastic Four story arc where they had visited the negative zone, it sort of jarred them loose and separated them. But there were energies that were building dangerously in Captain Marvel's body that he was previously unaware of. And they were able to, to save him from those. They hooked him up to basically an electric chair, and that's where the image from the cover comes from. Which is an image that gets used in Secret Invasion, because the uh, Secret Invasion tie-in issues are full of redos of old Marvel Avengers and related storylines, but with scrolls instead of the heroes, with the suggestion that, you know, the scrolls have been here for so long. I knew that cover before I knew this cover. When I got to Avengers 89 the very first time I read it, I was like, oh, so that's where that's from. Anyways. Yeah, that's what it is. So as we said, they are able to eventually cure Captain Marvel, but it does take Vision sacrificing most of his energy stores to succeed. 
So they're both very weakened by the process, which happens to be the point when the Kree Supreme Intelligence, who's been you know at odds with Ronan the Accuser, the current leader of the Kree, resurrect the Kree Sentry that's on Earth, previously seen in Fantastic Four as well, as it comes to kill Captain Marvel, and that ends issue 89. The Kree Sentry is the very first Kree element ever introduced in the Marvel, just for those keeping track at home. Yep, it was a robot they turned on on an isolated island and left it there. And then it wakes up and Fantastic Four to find it, and they barely do, and then whenever they feel like they defeated it slash destroyed it, Ronan the Accuser comes down and says, Hey, you messed with our Sentry. That was bad. I want to kill you now. Yeah, it was definitely definitely an interesting issue from the early Lee Kirby days. Uh, but issue 90 continues that fight. So this is where we see you know, Wanda using her hex power to cause the ceiling to collapse on the Kree Sentry, which has almost no effect. Quicksilver's fastest blows have almost no effect, and the Kree just has to catch Quicksilver once, and he's down. Now, Vision puts up more of a fight, but with his energy reserves being mostly depleted, it's not enough to protect him. He essentially knocks them both out. The sentry recovers first and leaves with Captain Marvel and actually teleports away. So Captain Marvel has now been captured. Yeah. Now, Carol Danvers, Carol Susan Jane Danvers, I believe, the current Captain Marvel, and in at least in today's publication, but longtime Miss Marvel, hadn't gotten her powers yet. She is just potential love interest and head of Cape Security. She shows up to basically help them. Now we get you know some more flashback issues about Earth history and Captain Marvel history. So if you didn't know who he was last issue, well this issue finally explains that. And we get connections to the current Avengers lineup with Clint Barton serving as Goliath. So he's not acting as Hawkeye right now. And that's a result of Hank Pym no longer wa- able slash wanting to be Goliath. He decides to be a, a small hero. And so Hank Pym had a lot of issues with the size changing affecting his health. So Hawkeye takes over the Goliath role for a while because he figures it's more powerful than shooting a few trick arrows. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, to me that didn't really seem like a good fit for him. But He agrees. Yeah. He, he was there for a while because they felt the team needed a powerhouse. And apparently the Vision doesn't qualify. So these guys go to the Arctic to answer a distress call from the Wasp, bowling over Jarvis in the process. And when they get there, the Wasp talks about how she and Yellow Jacket arrived to study something strange. You say they got to the Arctic. It's, it's, it's another Savage Land type of thing. It's almost like the two poles of the Earth don't know what to do with their weather because there's a jungle scene in the Arctic Circle. Yeah, there is. I mean... I don't know why I can accept it once, but find it hard to accept twice, but I do. Also, there's no land in the Arctic. I wish comic writers and writers in general would just remember that. There is no land in the Arctic. It's just floating chunks of ice, and some of them are really big, sure. That one I was willing to give them a bit of a pass on, because when they're called up, they I believe they just say the Arctic Circle. And if you check a globe, there are land masses that enter the Arctic Circle, but don't go all the way up to the Arctic itself. Okay. I'll buy that. Yeah, there's a lot of Canadian and Russian islands on both sides of the globe that creep into that circle. Okay, so this is the uh, Siberia-Canadian jungle. Yeah, this is <laughs> this is past the point where you can actually get grass to grow. But So they do fight, and there's Cree sentries here, some of which have managed to take over Goliath, or Clint Barton's mind, and cause him to fight against the Avengers. And they do, well, the Yellow Jacket, or Wasp, ends up captured, and is attacked by Yellow Jacket, who's been devolved into some kind of ape man through the machinations of Ronan the Accuser. And the issue ends with a not-at-all rapey-looking cliffhanger, because 
Yellow, ja- uh, Yellow Jacket has been devolved into some sort of, you know, anthropoid, and the wasp is lying prostrate on the ground, and he's coming up to her, and Rona's like, he was once her loving husband, and listen well to her last screams, Marvel. and I just, you know, I don't know. It's it's so suggestive in a non-explicit way that we should probably just jump over and go to the next issue. Oh, yeah, the one that says take a giant step backward and picks up on the same scene? Sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the first page is a quick recap of what's going on. Now, here there's enough love left that, you know, even though Hank Pym devolved, picks up a club and is ready to beat her, there, there's enough love that he says, no weak, no club, hurt, pretty, take you with for later. So he basically says, yeah, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to, you know, take the pretty girl and save her for later. So, and Ronan flat out says, oh, there's no need for concern. The savage simply desires a mate. So yeah, not suggestive at all. Yeah. And really, I mean, he walks off with her on this scene. And the next time we see them, there's nothing saying that bad things didn't happen. Now, it's her husband. Yes. But still, marital rape is a thing. And and this would be bad. Yeah, it's married or not. If she's not able to say yes, she is not able to say yes. Exactly. But turns out this is actually part of the century's plan is to devolve the human race. And I'm trying to remember my Inhumans history. If the fact that they were, you know, an offshoot of humanity that had been tweaked by the Cree, if that had been revealed by this point, I'm pretty sure it has. So the Cree have this weird interest in mankind's evolution and evolving them in such a way that they are subject to the Cree. And the fact that this hasn't happened the way they wanted it to, Ronan's like, I'm just going to take the whole human race back to basics and start over. But it ends up not working out for him like that. Yeah, so that is part of the plan is to to play with human evolution. And it's not the first or last time the Cree are going to do that, for reasons that will be explained come issue 97. There's a lot of fighting in this issue. Goliath and the sentry are fighting side by side until finally the Vision sticks a fist inside Goliath and causes him to collapse. Because the Vision can do that. He partially materializes inside you, and that messes up your stuff. So, um, takes them all out. And basically, the the plan from Ronin, he has captured the Vision of the Scarlet Witch, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But his entire plan is interrupted by the fact that, uh-oh, my home's getting invaded by scrolls. I gotta go fly back there. And so he leaves at the end of the issue just sort of out of nowhere. But before that happens, on his ship, he has captured the Vision and the Scarlet Witch. And this is what I was talking about earlier, is the Vision and the Scarlet Witch, who a camaraderie has been established to this point, but there's really been no hint of romance. And yet they're sitting there, and they almost kiss. And you turn the page, and the Vision turns away because he feels unworthy, because he's just a synthesoid of you know, plastoid flesh and synthetic blood. But this is the first explicit step toward the Vision and Scarlet Witch romance. Yeah, there are moments that can certainly be read both ways. As you said, they've got a lot of respect for each other. There's a lot of camaraderie with each other, you know. But if if they hadn't gone this route in this issue and had never gotten the two of them together, in retrospect, you may not see those as building to the love story. At least I don't know if I would have seen them as building to the love story if I didn't already know it was coming. Right. But yeah, this is the first time it's explicitly stated, and it's explicitly stated by Ronan the Accuser. He's the first one that, that realizes that an android and an atom-born mutant, rejected offspring of an Earthian technology, are in love. So they're both outcasts, they're both rejects, and they've found each other. Which is a pretty cool moment. 
and it's one of the things about Avengers history that I, I, I really enjoy is the Scarlet Witch vision connection. And I'm glad that we got one scene that slightly hints that it could be a suggestion of that connection in the movie. So made me happy. Quicksilver barges onto Ronan's ship, punches out the, the sentry a couple times. And Rick Jones is also there. Rick Jones unshackles Captain Marvel. And that's when Ronan finds out that no, they've got to go like now. And the sentry explodes. Yeah. With the sentry gone, the citadel that, or with Ronan gone, the citadel that he built may not hold together. So he, he tries to use all his own energy to keep the citadel together, but he fails. It's not enough. So it was Ronan. Apparently Ronan built a building that was his home base that required energy be drawn from Ronan to hold it in one piece. Okay. So. So Ronan bails to the Kree galaxy. The Sentry tries to hold the Citadel together, but commits suicide in the process. And all the Avengers manage to get away. One thing we neglected to mention is that there were some scientists involved in the Arctic Circle. That's one of the reasons why they went there in the first place, was to save these scientists. And so one of the upshots of this issue is that you have civilian witnesses to an attempted alien invasion of Earth. Sure, it's just Ronan, but he is trying to destroy and take over the human race. And all of the Avengers, to them, this is Tuesday. But to the scientists, this is a really big deal. And even though the Avengers go back home and decide to recoup and, you know, go play some volleyball, the scientists witness to these events are about to start some events in motion that bring us into issue 92. Yeah. And just to go back to our earlier point about how this feels like a multiple stories and not one big arc, this actually has Fini at the end of this issue. Right. It explicitly says, this story's done. And yet the next story begins. There's a little moment when they're all, you know, hanging out at Avengers Mansion. Scarlet Witch is going for a stroll in the park. Quicksilver has his feet up. He's having some hot chocolate. Uh, the Vision turns down that on offer to join Scarlet Witch in the park that she also extended to Quicksilver because, you know, he's worried about this variant of the English opening in chess. And Jarvis comes in very disturbed. And he could be disturbed about the Collector or about Ultron. It could be an entirely new story. He could be disturbed by the Vision's tur turtleneck. We don't know. <laughs> that That is an interesting fashion choice for the Vision, I will agree. But no, he comes in saying that basically the Avengers are on the news and not in a good way. Yeah, these scientists, under the influence of H. Warren Craddock, the you know very influential politician, have decided to step forward and reveal the details of this alien invasion to the world at large. And... H. Warren Craddock is not at all an analog to McCarthy. Right. And I was trying to think, I am unaware of any cultural movements of the early 70s that were McCarthy-esque. So I don't know if, if they were just using this because it was something in recent memory that they could use, or if they were trying to comment on things that were happening. Well, it's, I, I'm pretty sure it was a McCarthyism, because even when... H. Warren Craddock says that he has at his possession a list of 153 model citizens who are actually alien spies. McCarthy kicked off the congressional hearings by saying he had a list of some number, which was variable according to which speech he was given, of supposed model citizens who were actually communist spies. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a McCarthyism thing. I just didn't know if there was something in the real world early 70s to bring McCarthyism back to mind, you know? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's none that I'm aware of either. But Captain Marvel and Rick show up. And Captain Marvel volunteers to give himself up because he is a Kree. And one of the things that Craddock is saying is the Avengers have been harboring this alien 
this alien is of the same race as the aliens who are trying to destroy us. We want him for questioning. And so Captain Marvel volunteers to give himself up, and the Avengers are basically like, um, that's awesome of you to say, but no, we're not going to let you because you could be killed. Yeah, they've got a, a much better read on the way people are, are uh, going to be reacting to this. And Marvel doesn't understand. I mean, he's not from Earth. He's been here for a short time, but always on the outskirts, which is why no one knows he exists. Carol Danvers, he says with air quotes, comes back again after having helped them out in the Not Savage Land last issue. She shows up at Avengers Mansion to help give Captain Marvel a place to go and a place of safety. But then she crashes the helicopter because the Vision doesn't know who she is and attacks the helicopter. So they crash on the roof. Yeah. And Captain Marvel goes to rescue her, which is what brings him back into the public eye and reveals to the world that, oh, you know what? The Avengers are harboring Captain Marvel and they are guarding or keeping this alien under wraps. We get, you know, quick cameos by Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan because S.H.I.E.L.D. is being called in whether they like it or not. Yeah, they're part of the forces being called in to bring the Avengers to heal. Yeah. And one of the things I like is... Dugan saying, hey, Fury, why did you order such a loose formation? Because it was this loose formation coming in that allows the Avengers to escape. And Fury's response is, I got to look at some of our Japanese-American relocation centers back during the big one. Saw what they do to men on both sides of the barbed wire. So I didn't do that for Marvel, you old walrus. I did it for America. I love Nick Fury. Yeah, this is an awesome era. He's like, you know what? I don't know if we could trust this alien either, but I'm here to serve my country. And these orders are not good for my country. I'm going to go through the motions, but I'm not going to do it. But that does put the Avengers on the outs with the law, which I think is kind of a first for them. I mean, they've had a couple of places, a couple of times in their history where the laws looked at them a bit, a bit askance, like the Serpent um, Serpent Society. Not the Serpent Society, the Sons of the Serpent. Yes, right. Sons of the from, Serpent. from early Roy Thomas. But while they're thinking about that, we get a seemingly out of nowhere reminiscence from rick jones he's like i gotta sort some things out i keep remembering when i was a runt back at the orphanage that's when i first found a barrel full of old comic books i read them and reread them and they'll tell they were falling apart and they were full of heroes simpler heroes few of them turned out to be realies didn't have a lot of hang-ups back then they were just superpowered joes with a clear idea of what truth was and justice even law and order and that's when i first decided i wanted to be a superhero or do anything I could to be around guys like that. Guys who lived and fought in a world of black and white, not murky gray. We get this one really cool image. It's not a full page. It's about a half a page, but it's sort of in the center of the page of Rick Jones's head remembering all these heroes he read about. And we get the Submariner, the Human Torch, and Captain America, and a lot of less known, timely characters. And... Sure, it helps to sort of illustrate the difference between values of the 40s and values of the 70s and how patriotism has become a lot more of a, you know, murky era of thought, but it also lays a couple of seeds for the climax of the story that, again, you have no idea is coming the way it's coming. No, it is. It's definitely a very oddly structured issue or the whole saga's unusual structure. It works, but you wouldn't see the structure today. Now, they cut from here to, you know, the Avengers reacting as, you know, as we said, now that Captain Marvel's revealed to be there, didn't take long for a crowd to arrive with some pre-made signs. You know, Avengers disassembled and up against the wall Avengers. The Marvel Universe has to have people that sell blank picket signs and jiffy markers on every corner. 
didn't you already do the Avengers Disassemble story? Yeah. Okay. So we can stop the, we can stop the episode now then, because we don't need to talk about that. Just kidding. Yeah. Markers and signs, they are, they're issued when you live in the Marvel Universe. Anyway, so from there they end up at a courthouse, and, you know, we get testimony from, you know, the scientists saying, well, yeah, they rescued us, but man, I know Captain Marvel's a Kree, he's one of them, or they said we weren't supposed to reveal this because it caused a public panic, but, you know, we, I think it's just they were protecting their buddy and going on with all these reasons. And Mr. Fantastic just saying, it's like, you know what, I've never met this guy, but if the Avengers say he poses no threat, I'm inclined to accept their judgment. And then Ben Grimm comes in and undermines that, saying, well, you know what, I don't know these Avengers. So, you know, we don't need guys like these four. And H. Warren Craddock is there, and he's stirring things up, and it does not go favorably, favorably for them. He calls the Vision to stand, and the Vision tries to be Captain Picard from the episode The Drumhead. He tries to bring forth the reason and the passionate plea to call off the witch hunt. And it almost works. Everyone has stopped to listen. But then Craddock, because of reasons, pounds the gavel and says, if you think you can influence this commission to drop its investigation and let humanity's enemies have a field day, you're engaging in an idle dream. Which causes Rick Jones to remember a dream he had last night of Captain Marvel and Carol Danvers going into a weird upstate farmhouse where she was going to take him for safety. But whenever he goes inside, he gets attacked by hentai tentacles. Yep, causing Rick to burst out of the courtroom and go charging off, which angers Craddock and doesn't go well for the Avengers. Uh, Scarlet Witch finds that you know she uses her hex power to try and disperse the crowd, but it doesn't quite work. Avengers Mansion was trashed. Apparently it doesn't have nearly the defenses it would eventually develop. Yeah, because they landed on the roof earlier. They were on the roof earlier when the helicopter crashed. I just read an issue today that's about, oh, I don't know, 20 issues hence from here. And there are all these automated defense systems that whenever they land on the roof without shutting off those defenses, they get all kinds of attacks they have to deal with. So those uh, those get installed later, I guess. Yeah, certainly before New Warriors number one. But anyway, yeah, so this ends with Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor showing up and saying, "We, you know, you guys have messed up. We are hereby disbanding the Avengers for all time. And then they leave. And although this feels like the sort of thing that, of course, if you're going to have an next issue of The Avengers, you're going to have to revive The Avengers, this feels like another The End to the story. So you had the first three issues that ended whenever they, you know, Ronan left, and now you have a sort of epilogue issue that brings that storyline to an even fuller completion. And what we don't realize is that, no, things are still just getting going. And 93 is this beachhead Earth, and that's when Neil Adams comes on as artist. Oh, yes. And he comes on with a splash with the Vision bursting through a door. Those same three Avengers that we just saw are there. And Vision collapses before he explains why they're here. We know that they don't understand why they've been called together. Hank Pym shows up as Ant-Man. He's no longer a superhero. He's saying he's an ex-Avenger. He's decided that he is more useful to the world as a research scientist than as a superhero. We get a quick recap of how he should be able to fix the Vision because he made Ultron and Ultron made Vision. Once again, we haven't mentioned it before, but a lot of these issues have ads for muscle-building techniques with Arnold Schwarzenegger as a spokesperson. <laughs> yes. I want to back up just a little bit to give this particular issue a little bit of uh, context. Issue 93 had a cover date of November 1971. Marvel had a plan to extend all or at least many of their ongoing monthlies 
to a 52 page count instead of a 34 page. I'm sorry, a 50. Boy, without the covers, it'd be yeah, they announced it as 52 pages, but they were including the front or the the outsides and insides of front and back covers. So there's 48 story pages. Well, 48 pages of con, uh, 48 pages of, of material, not all them story, and yeah. as opposed to the 32 pages, and yeah. they were going to do that along with the price hike to help justify the price hike. This plan lasted exactly one month. <laughs> it did not survive. People cannot create that much story that quickly. And so even though the price hike stayed and comics were still a quarter, they went back to their standard page count with the December issues. Depending on the title, yeah. The, I think Silver Surfer title, I don't remember if it was running concurrently or not, or if this was earlier in, in testing the waters. But I do know it launched with the extra price and the extra page count, but the material in the back was actually reprints of Tales of the Watcher stories from Tales of Suspense. Yeah, and Silver Surfer was a special deal. This was supposed to be an across-the-line thing that Marvel was going to do with almost all with all their major titles, and it just didn't last. Uh, Spider-Man has a, a double-sized issue from this month. Fantastic Four have a double-sized issue from this month. And the next month is just normal again. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, you have a shrinking biochemist and you have a patient. So you can predict a large part of the next few pages. Ant-Man shrinks and goes inside to fix what's wrong with the vision. Because Fantastic Voyage was all the rage. Yeah. And while he's there, he does go through and... There's some pop culture references that he does. He's got some issues as we see some of the internals of how the Vision's powers work. But by and large, Ant-Man's in there. We learn about the Vision's internal workings as he deals with the immune system, but he does manage to get things repaired. So we're a little over halfway through the issue when he's able to restore the Vision to operation. And this is where the Vision reveals that these three just disbanded the Avengers, which is news to them. So apparently those were imposters of some kind. Of some kind? Hmm. It does feel a little bit like padding like they decided to expand the issues so they had to figure out something to do with the other half of the pages they had to generate and so hey let's do a fantastic voyage thing since the imposter we're about to get to the reveal of why the vision is here in the first place but since the imposter heroes attacked the avengers and attacked the vision let's give a, a nice long extended sequence of making the vision feel better again yeah it almost feels like the issue had the outline established before they got the orders to jack up the page count Mm -hmm. And they, rather than add story beats to the outline, they just made the first sequence longer. Because really, Vision could have walked in on the Avengers, collapsed from lack of energy, spent a page getting to feel better, and then gone on with the story that we have on page 18. Yeah, they could have just plugged him in for a bit. And Iron Man knows all about that. So, But what, we'd found, what we find out is the reason the Vision is so out of source is because he just had a really bad run-in with some cows. Oh yes, very much so. Three cows in particular that managed to blast him out of the sky and then turned into members of the Fantastic Four and attacked him. And if you know your Fantastic Four stories, you know the significance of three cows. Oh, yes. And they're very specific about how it was three cows, not just in the art, but in the dialogue. They're emphasizing that number three. And then we cut to part three with Neil Adams and Carol Danvers in Skrull custody as they're viewing the attack by these Fantastic Four imposters on the Avengers. And we get description and flashback to Fantastic Four issue two. The first appearance of the Skrulls when, you know, Reed essentially hypnotized them into thinking they were cows. And there was just enough space on the page for a skinny little panel revealing that. And Jack Kirby really only had the space to draw three of them, even though there were four characters to begin with. So I don't believe that they ever intended to only have the three cows there. I think the panel would have just looked too cramped if Kirby had drawn all four, so he chose not to. Right. But being comics nerds, 
we like to take any suggestion of, of a plot opening and spin a story out of it. So that's what Roy Thomas is doing here by turn, taking that fourth cow and turning it into a story point. He does. He uses them all quite well. And then we get some nicely done parallel action with Captain Marvel fighting against the Super Skrull and the Fantastic Four imposters fighting against the Avengers. As they're going through the parallel action, and, you know, Goliath goes after this, you know, the Skrull spacecraft and starts to shrink. Can't get a good grip on anything. Thor saved him, and Clint Barton is really down on himself in this role. And they're all upset because they have lost the captive Avengers. They did not save their comrades this time around. Meantime, on the ship, they, they, the Skrulls have captured Captain Marvel because they want him to build an Omniwave projector, which is a device that Kree used for instantaneous interstellar communications, but a technology which can also be used to power a weapon and give instantaneous interstellar attack capability. So rather than risk being killed and having Carol Danvers killed, he does build the Omniwave projector, but something happens to tip off Captain Marvel that's, that there's more than meets the eye going on. And while he's holding the finished Omniwave projector, he crushes it in his hands and Carol Danvers behind him and says, you destroyed it. Then, you know, and Carol Danvers is not Carol Danvers. The Carol Danvers we've had in the entire story has actually been a scroll. Not just any scroll, Clerk the Super Scroll. Yes. So if you look up a Carol Danvers appearance list, she actually is not in comics after Captain Marvel number 18 when she gets blasted by the thing that's going to give her superpowers. She's not in comics again until Ms. Marvel number one, except for this storyline, which is not really Cap uh, Carol Danvers. But yeah, there's some really great parallel action, but the Skrulls have successfully captured Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, and Captain Marvel. Goliath tries to ca uh, stop the ship from taking off. He fails, he lands, and the Avengers have lost some of their comrades. So he started off with a Kree attack, Ronan fled because the Skrulls were attacking his empire, or his galaxy, and now the Skrulls are on Earth, and apparently have been for some time, because they were there during that Kree story. And now we're continuing on with Skrulls taking some of our captive, some of our heroes captive, and the heroes have to get them back. Yeah, and speaking of which, issue 94 begins with captive Skrulls. And the most awkward panel of scrolls, and I don't know what Captain America is doing to that scroll, but it looks like it should be censored. Yeah, he's punting him with something. The scroll's trying to blow up like a dirigible, he says, and he's using a sedative ray on him. Right through between the, the scroll's open thighs. So yeah. Yeah, I thought that was his belly. It is. It just looks really weird. Uh, anyway, so they managed to subdue them. Get in touch with the Fantastic Four who retell the story again and say, okay, well, we've got them. We need to pack it up. Meanwhile, Ben's in the background going, oh, you cream pups are lucky you didn't run into the Super Scroll. He's really got all our powers. He would have clobbered you. And Reed's, Ben, for Pete's sake. Well, he would have. <laughs> so, and then Reed says he's going to check the records and get back to them to see where these guys came from. And then from here, we bring in the Inhumans. Yeah, the Super Scroll bombs the Great Refuge, although he does, he ends up not harming it. And that brings the Inhumans into the story in ways that are not immediately apparent, but it's there. Yeah, and he does bomb them because of their connection to the Kree. The Vision does sneak a peek in the flying ship using his phasing abilities, so he does see that the Skrulls have Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, but then he leaves. Yeah, and then we get to 1971, uh, Space Odyssey. 
which isn't the, the lettering here is an homage to the lettering of 2001 A Space Odyssey's opening title sequence, which I'm assuming you've seen. Oh, many times. Okay. Yes. If it's Kubrick and still survives, I've seen it. So John Buscema does the middle chapter on the art. The Super Scroll is hoping to ingratiate himself with his empire. That's why he's doing all these, uh, these captives here. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Emperor is upset with how things are going in the war, and his daughter Anel doesn't understand why they need to be at war at all, and he is quite glad that when she marries, it'll be her husband who runs the Empire and not her. Right. Yeah, so they, they have these guys captive, and they are really putting them through the ringer, at least mentally and psychologically. And again, they want to, they want Captain Marvel to make an Oniwave projector. Yeah, which he eventually, he does finally agree to do, because he figures, okay, it's me or them, and he can't let them die. The tortures are kind of weird because there's one point where it looks like Scarlet Witch is being eaten by Tribbles. Yeah. But, you know, it's bad. So they're very, they're very evil Tribbles. Because the Scroll Emperor is, is torturing Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch so much, Captain Marvel does decide to make the Omniwave projector for them. And Super Scrolls hopes to ingratiate himself with his Emperor did not really go so well. I mean, the, the Scroll Emperor is glad to have these heroes here, but he doesn't really care much for the Super Scrolls still. No, he doesn't. And then from here, we cut back to Earth with Behold the Mandroids. So I believe this is going to end with the first appearance of the Mandroids. I don't believe they'd appeared prior to this. This is the first. Atorian Craddock is here. They are interrogating the three scientists who spilled the beans and now regret it. Because it's, you know, they're saying the people, Craddock, everybody's turning paranoid about the Kree. The Avengers were right. Yeah, we should have kept our traps shut. So they are learning to regret their ways. Meanwhile, Nick Fury contacts the Avengers to... You know, give them a, sort of a coded warning. It's just giving you a buzz, Cap, to see if all you Avenger types were home. You know, they tell me Acapulco's great this time of year. Well, see ya. And, you know, that's kind of his way of saying, get out. And the Vision shows up and says, yeah, there's people coming in. There's S.H.I.E.L.D. helicopters. There's, you know, H. Warren Craddock has got people coming in. And this is where they deploy the Mandroids. And that's where we, um, no, they're, they're, I was going to say that's where we end, because there's a huge, dramatic full-page splash of the Mandroids coming out. And Mandroids are just dudes in armor suits. Much later, they will have integrated some Tony Stark technology, which is part of the Armor Wars uh, storyline with Tony Stark. But at this point, they're just government agents in armor and weapons, and they fight the Avengers. And <laughs> Iron Man breaks out his rocket-powered roller skates at one point. Yeah, well, it is armor that, that Tony Stark helped, he designed and helped train them on. Did he? Okay. Yeah, even in Armor Wars, he said, yeah, they were always there. You know, even in, in this issue, when Cap's throwing a shield, he's like, Iron Man's saying, your shield's useless against that crew. Cap says, what? You talk like you designed those metal straight jackets, friend. And Iron Man says, I didn't, but Tony Stark did. And they were trained with simulated battles to take on even the Avengers. Okay. Okay, so it is a Stark technology. It's just later on, whenever he's trying to recap, recapture all of his technology, the Mandroids are one of his targets. Yeah. Okay. And that's the one where Rhodey starts saying, are you going a bit too far? Because S.H.I.E.L.D. didn't steal their technology. They bought it from you. You gave it to them. That's right. That's right. Well, the battle is still going when the issue ends, but a very non-sequitur panel is Triton coming up out of a manhole cover, obviously hurt and weak, saying, I'm here at last. But in the background, Avengers are fighting mandroids. And that's where we end. It just sort of seems to come out of nowhere. Although we did, like you said, with the very beginning of the issue, we did get the Inhumans reference through an attack. Yeah, and even Stranger is issue ninety-five picks up with Triton 
also coming in for help, but this time he's crawling out of the ocean and onto the dock, rather than coming out of a manhole. So we roll back the clock one hour to start issue 95. Yeah, and we see him sequestering a vehicle, coming to the blockade that's keeping people from going to the Avengers. He tries to cross it, gets shot at, and he ducks at a manhole to escape, and then reemerges on the other side. So, you know, the beating he took that led to that issue wasn't revealed until the start of this issue. So the reason he's up here in, you know, in the States is because he's trying to find the Fantastic Four, because the king of the Inhumans, Black Bolt, has been lost, which feeds into the Inhumans storyline that's running at the same time, I want to say, in Amazing Adventures. I think this is the Amazing Adventures 1 through 10, is that Black Bolt leaves the Inhumans, and so the Inhumans go after him. This story kind of ties into that. Iron Man does find a way to beat the Mandroids. He uses technology to, to like, fry their wires or something. And yeah, this was this issue came out between Amazing Adventures issues nine and ten. Okay, or at least the cover date matches that range. I I want to say that this chapter is interspliced between two chapters of that story, but it's been so long since I've read that story, I forget exactly how it all plays out. Yeah, I, I believe so too. But in any case, so Iron Man beats the Androids. The Avengers split up because they need to help the Inhumans, but they also need to recover their 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 lost comrades. And Vision really wants to save the Scarlet Witch because she almost kissed him. And any red-faced man knows that that's really awesome and we should make that happen again. Yeah. First, we see the group that's tracking after Black Bolt. And these are groups selected by the Vision who's questioning, was I really doing that emotionlessly? They asked for me to do it because it's my computer brain who could pick the best team. But maybe I skewed the power to save Scarlet Witch because of the way I feel about her. But anyway, they do save Black Bolt, who now has his lost memory back and... You know, he's got a child with him that he brings back to the Inhumans. When we get to the Great Refuge, we do find that Maximus the Mad has taken over. Maximus the Mad has the voice of um, Vincini from Princess Bride. So anytime I'm reading Inhuman stories to my kids, that's how Maximus the Mad talks. You see, he can talk very quietly and calmly, but then he'll get angry and he'll just start screaming at the top of his lungs about how you're supposed to be something something in Greenland. And that's how I read Maximus the Mad. Just throw that out there. That part's free. Okay. All right. So all the Avengers show up there. They can't get into the Great Refuge, but uh, Black Bolt, he does whisper from, you know, on high, and it turns into a booming voice that announces, hey, I'm Black Bolt. I am back. Lay down your weapons. Now, I just want to retract just a little bit because we get some origin and background for Black Bolt that we had never gotten heretofore. It's really rather cool. I had to smile whenever I found that his father's name was Lee Raj with a hyphen, and it's Jor-El spelled backwards. Made me smile. But there's an origin of Black Bolt and Maximus that's given that ties them to the Kree and to Ronan. So their life stories and why Maximus is mad, how he got injured when they were younger, and how Black Bolt's powers emerged and everything else are all tied into this whole thing in ways that we had not previously known. So it's, it's kind of neat that even though the Inhumans sort of feel like they're out of nowhere in the story, why are we including them in this? They actually do have a connection to the mythos that's being woven by this by the saga. Yeah, absolutely. I don't remember exactly how many details. I At this point, it is clear. Earlier, couldn't remember clearly, but yeah. Now it is clear that we knew that the Inhumans were a result of Kree experimentation. That's, you know, they even talk about, 
you know, the, the Cree spawn pilot within in these vehicles and, and all the mentions of the Cree. But yeah, I don't know if we know that they were, if the experiment was designed to make biological weapons. That's what they were intended to be, which is likely why the Skrulls were attacking them in the first place. Cause hey, here's a Cree weapons cache. We better take that out because whether, whether we knew it now or not, this is a th- thing that the Cree have done on a regular basis is turning right. these peoples into biological weapons. Yeah. Queer, uh, it's an interesting way to go about getting weapons. Yeah. But in any event, after this devastation, after the attacks on the Great Refuge, the capture of the Avengers, Captain America has had enough. The Avengers are coming for you, Krees and Skrulls alike, and nothing can stay our hand from vengeance, nothing but death. Yeah, because now Rick Jones has been taken as well by the Kree, and so we've lost Quicksilver, we've lost Scarlet Witch, we've lost Captain Marvel. We've lost Rick Jones, and yeah, things are bad. And the Supreme Intelligence shows up on the last page, which shifts our attention back to the create in other ways. He is saying the players are all in place, let the final phase begin, which kind of does signal the narrative structure, because we had, you know, 89 through 91, 92-ish dealing with the Cree attack, and then 92 sort of setting up things that have fed through 93, 94, 95 dealing with the scrolls. And now the Kree are back in effect as well. And for our last phase of 96 and 97, we have a full-on Kree scroll conflict and the Avengers are going to go to space. And I'm pretty sure this is their first time to do so. I say I'm pretty sure because like the Fantastic Four went to space so many times that it was commonplace, except whenever they acted like it wasn't. But I think the Avengers have stayed on Earth this whole time. As a team, yes. Thor may have been into space at this point. Yeah, but God to do that. But issue 96 opens with the Avengers landing on one of the S.H.I.E.L.D.'s orbiting platforms this time. The one that's uh, reserved for dignitaries, dictators, physicists, and fools. And, yeah, you know, they're coming to ask a favor of Nick Fury. They need a ship. Yeah. You know, and Fury brings it to them and says, yeah, points out the ship, says, there she is, give her a power source and she's ready to go. Now hurry up and take off before I accidentally see you birds. <laughs> because Nick Fury is once again being awesome. Yeah. But we get another quick recap of the previous seven issues as the Avengers are collecting to fly out and they're up against the, the Skrull Armada in a single ship. Which is kind of amusing when someone's reporting to the Commandant a single ship has appeared from nowhere on our ISDAI screens. You know, the Infrabream spacecraft detection and identification, the Skrull radar. But we've not yet passed through hyperspace, let alone the Kree Nega Shield, which prevented all save Super Skrull from reaching the planet Sol 3. And the Commandant's response is it must be a trick, perhaps even a trap. Even the accursed Kree, from whom we plan to wrest that primitive world, would never dare send a lone ship against us. Order all aethercraft to momentum zero. Stop at once. So, just because they came in a single ship, the Kree have stopped. Had it been a whole fleet, eh, the invasion might have continued. The Skrulls have stopped. Yeah, sorry, the Skrulls have stopped because, you know, there's no reason a single ship would try to attack them. Right. But the Avengers come in, and they are able to rip into one of the ships in the Armada. They manage to pick out the lead ship, and they start tearing it up from within. Clint Barton is once again feeling useless that, you know, he's given up the growth serum. And without that, well, yeah, all he can do is kind of stay outside and just play watchdog while the other Avengers go in and fight. Yeah, that's one thing I guess we didn't mention is that he decided to stop taking the growth serum. And so he was just able to work for a little while on what was left in his system. But now that's definitely worn out and he can no longer size change. Yeah, so he is done. Now, from here, the, the Skrulls tell the Avengers to stop, because they're saying, hey, you know what? Captain Marvel's working for us now. He's building the Omniwave device. You're toast. 
Let us prove it to you. They show him on the view screen, and when they go to touch him to get him to respond, they realize it's a hologram. <gasps> and this is where Captain Marvel reveals that, hey, you know what? The Omniwave, or the Omniwave, it can also project images if you know how to use it. And he managed to sneak away from his captors and use that time to start rallying against them. So the Skrulls set up Plan Delta. The Avengers start fighting against them. The Vision practically beats a Skrull to death to get him to speak. And he's quite clear that he knows what he's doing. So meanwhile, Goliath gets word from Cap that, you know, one of these vessels is trying to leave and stop it at any cost, even including if it's your life. Clint Barton agrees, but doesn't wait for the other guys. He goes it alone and bursts into this, and he's ready to take them on one-on-one. Now, from here, we cut back to Ronan, who is running the Kree, and we find out that one of these soldiers felt compelled to capture Rick Jones for no good reason, which frustrates Ronan. Rick Jones tries fighting back and calls him out, but he is no match whatsoever for Ronan. I mean, Rick Jones is just a dude. And you remember Ronan from the Guardians of the Galaxy film, if from nowhere else. And he is pretty uber powerful. Yeah. So it's he could swat Rick Jones like a fly, but in a sense, he decides to just turn him into a lackey and a slave, because that would amuse him. And Rick Jones ends up getting thrown into the same captivity as the Kree Supreme Intelligence. The Kree Empire has captured their own Supreme Intelligence, their ruler, and imprisoned him. Ronan has, I guess, staged a coup at some point. Yep, he is Usurper to the Empire, or Emperor, and we learn through this, you know, this is when the Supreme Intelligence says that, yeah, he's been orchestrating the whole thing right from the start, giving him that dream that made him burst out of the court trial, preventing Captain Marvel from realizing he was dealing with the Super Skrull, making that Kree soldier capture Rick Jones, all to get him there. And H. Warren Craddock's hounding of the Avengers and of Marvel. Yep, he does all of this, and then dumps Rick Jones back into the negative zone, where Annihilus is right there. And that leads us towards issue 97, which is described here as the final chapter, Godhood's End. And the cover is great because we have, like, magician Rick Jones in the background waving his warbly, light-stricken arms as Flaming Skull, Patriot, Vision, the Finn, Submariner, the Human Torch, and Captain America are all, you know, coming towards the camera to attack. These are all timely heroes, not modern marvel heroes yeah these are by and large the ones that appeared to him in his sort of daydream in issue 92 which was also the doing of the Cree supreme intelligence but rick is in the negative zone and he's thinking about everything he's got to deal with everything he needs to save them from and he's able to conjure some kind of mind blast that drives annihilus back and that buys him time meanwhile the avengers are attacking the skrulls but there's just too many of them captain marvel destroys the omniwave projector again, to make sure that it, it never gets used for the for the wrong purposes. Rick realizes he can use the power of thought to navigate within and escape from the negative zone. So he opens his own portal and comes back to reality. Yeah, and this whole thing was orchestrated by the Kree Supreme Intelligence, even allowing Captain Marvel to build the Omniwave device just so the Omniwave could be used on Rick Jones to unlock potential that apparently every human has. And he uses this potential to draw forth images of those timely era superheroes, including the Golden Age Vision and the Golden Age Human Torch, the Angel. He talks about Rick Jones's cosmic heritage being that of the entire human race. And it seems that Rick Jones just happens to be the random human of the three billion available that the Supreme Intelligence has chosen. I don't think there's anything special about Rick Jones, but he has chosen Rick Jones as, you know, the channel and funnel of all human potential to be realized in this one boy. And 
Rick Jones uses his new supreme intelligence mind powers to to make superhero holograms. I mean, they're real. They they fight, but they're temporarily real. Yep. They're real enough to help win the battle and buy Rick enough time to fully realize his powers where he's able to just reach out with his mind and freeze every member of the Korean Skrull Armadas. So kind of like a Professor X kind of move. And something that we don't see happen, but that he says later happens, is that he kills a Skrull Emperor. Yeah, yeah, that definitely didn't make it on page. No, but it's mentioned in dialogue. I was like all flipping through the, the panels. Where, where did this happen? Where did this happen? We haven't seen the Skrull Emperor except for one panel briefly last issue. We haven't really seen the Skrull Emperor since the scenes with him and his daughter two issues, three issues ago. Yeah, I wonder if it's a moment that had to be redrawn because of Comics Code Authority or something along those lines. Or if it Maybe. was an afterthought after it was penciled. They say, well, no, why would the Skrull stop in general and not just this attack? Well, we killed the leader. Right. It, it could have been either way. Um, he does get a flashback to H. Warren Craddock back on Earth, who is then revealed to be the fourth Skrull from Fantastic Four number two. Yes. And Rick Jones killed him with a thought. So all the McCarthyism was propagated by a scroll. All of the anti-Avengers propaganda. Sure, there were normal humans feeding into it, but it was fomented by an alien force. Which is a little bit disappointing. I kind of like the idea of the evils of humanity coming out of humanity, you know? Yeah, but that would have allowed Roy Thomas to go back and put in a retcon that brings these guys out and the fourth scroll and everything it, 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 it works it's just you know yeah although it does bring a lot of questions to the forefront about the scroll kill crew <laughs> yeah if you know their origins i don't see how that works in the context of the kree scroll war but that's okay because the scroll kill crew are weird uh but anyway ted you said you got the impression that any human could have done it it's actually stated right here on story page 18 rick says you mean any Earthman could have been stimulated to do what i did and the supreme intelligence Responses precisely, and all of them shall do so in some distant, unglimpsed future. Except that he's glimpsed it. Yeah. So at this point, Rick passes out, but the Kree Supreme Intelligence uses his abilities to bring the Avengers and Captain Marvel together to reveal that you know now that the Kree or the Skrull Emperor is gone, you know there might be a future for Marvel and Anel, who is now the leader of the Empire. But that future is averted because the only way to save Rick Jones' life is for him to merge with Captain Marvel once again. So Captain Marvel joins his essence with Rick Jones once again, which brings Rick Jones back to consciousness and also serves as the impetus to launch, relaunch the Captain Marvel title a couple months later. Yep. And then from here we go back to a quick shot on Earth where Nick Fury introduces the Avengers to the real H. Warren Craddock, who had been captured by a Skrull some weeks back. And the real guy, you know, especially with the Supreme Intelligence's influence eliminated, is able to calm the people down and say, yeah, you know what? The Avengers are okay. They haven't done anything wrong. And this is the point where they point out that the last time we saw Clint Barton, he was breaking into an alien spacecraft filled with Skrulls. And he hasn't been seen since. They're saying, you know what? This thing with a lot of power brought all the living Avengers together, and he wasn't with us. And we're just kind of trying not to think about it. Mm. And I'm actually trying to think, because I know I, I, I noticed that, and I know I was paying attention to it whenever I read issue 98 to see where Hawkeye came down. But now I can't remember off the top of my head. One thing I do remember about the fallout of this story is that Rick Jones really thinks he's a superhero and wants to be an Avenger after this issue. And they're like, uh, no. So a much more detailed synopsis than I thought we were going to do, but I had fun walking through the story again because it had been a while since I'd read it. Yeah, and it, I had the same thing. It's probably the longest synopsis yet, but I think that's largely because, you know, we talk about why things made the list. And 
this is just a really entertaining story, and it's the first story told on this scale in the Marvel Universe. It's not a crossover, but it is an event. It's an event story in the Avengers Marvel Universe. It involves every major hero of the era. Fantastic Four are in there. Spider-Man's not. Daredevil's not, I guess. So I shouldn't say every major hero. But, you know, this is a big, big story. And I could not even imagine how many issues it would take to tell the same story with modern sensibilities. Um, unless you're Jonathan Hickman, then you could probably cram it into four. But and they would be, you know, hard to read and hard to follow. Yeah, I think if they were to do it today, it would be like the Infinity Trilogy, where one year's event is the Kree attack, one year's event is the Skrull attack, and then the third year's event is the tie-in when they're all together. Yeah. This was... Uh, <laughs> and and the feedback they got from this was also epic and huge. People were responding so strongly in the letters columns to the storyline. This is This is cosmic marvel. This is almost... I don't want to say the birth of Cosmic Marvel, but surely the first really big use of the fact that Marvel has an intergalactic saga that they have started. And this story is the first really big way that that's taken advantage of. Yeah, this is one that kicks a lot of that off. And that's a lot of the significance. It was just from a publishing standpoint, it was the first story on this scale. From a reader standpoint, it was the first story on this scale. You know, the Avengers left a man behind. There were points where it looked like they were dissolved. It put in a lot of backstory for, as we said, the Inhumans and in particular their, you know, Black Bolt and Maximus, the Bol Boltagon brothers. It brings so much together. And this, I am happy to read it. I mean, we talk about how we were first exposed to these stories. I can't remember if I read this for the first time in Essential Avengers Volume 4 or on the Git Corp DVD ROMs. It would have been one of those two. I read it about three years ago for the first time because Lily and I were walking through Silver Age Marvel in our bedtime reading. We got to where she was 10 years old and no longer needed to be read to at night. It was no longer really enjoying being read to, just wanted to read on her own. And so I kept on reading on my own. We did not get this far together, but we got to about 1970. And so I was reading along on my own. I read this shortly after. and was just kind of gobsmacked by the storyline. Read it again for my Avengers read-through that I did after the Avengers movie came out. Read it again for this podcast. And it's it's just so good. And I think it's honest. You could honestly say that if this story hadn't happened, who's to know if we would have ever gotten, you know, Operation Galactic Storm, which, you know, questioned the, the quality of that story. But it was big. And it was intergalactic. And I think uh, Annihilation comes out of, you know, the dynamics, the, the cosmic dynamics that are set up by this story. And there's just so much of Marvel that owes itself to this story here. Rick Jones is kind of a joke now, and this one instance of his being more powerful than he ever should have been is kind of part of that. Yeah, I mean, this is the issue, or the story to me, that establishes the Skrulls as a race-wide threat. When they showed up the first time as imposters, that was dealt with. The Super Skrulls seemed like a threat, and after the Super Skrull, to me, it didn't seem like the normal Skrulls would come back. We'd kind of had their story. But this shows that, no, even without their shape-shifting powers, the Skrulls are a formidable opponent. They are taking on the Kree, and Earth is caught in the crossfire. And that's one of the things I like. It's not yet another alien invasion of Earth. Earth is not the goal. Earth is the means to the end. Right. Right. It's just we happen to be in the wrong galactic position for these, you know, two galactic empires to be battling each other. So it's definitely a major story. As far as deeper meanings... um, well, shoot, there's so many themes that get used 
across the way here. I mean, there's the McCarthyism and respecting people for being people and not for falling into a category of people. There's any man can be a hero with Rick Jones. I mean, sure, he gets given deus ex machina powers by the Supreme Intelligence for strange reasons. And, and really, really, that's my one quibble with this story is that the ending just seems to be the one thing that didn't really fit. Yeah, for Marvel's first story above three issues, when it hits nine issues, it still feels rushed in the end. Yeah, it does. Issues eight and nine together feel rushed because except for Rick Jones doing his thing, a lot of the a lot of the the wars closing action is done in, in, in issue eight, and then you get to issue nine, and Rick Jones just freezes everybody. Yeah, this it really felt like there should have been a tenth issue with a little more to get you there. Right, and maybe they didn't do that because they wanted to tell a story that because I think if I recall, ninety eight, ninety nine, and one hundred make a trilogy, so they they had to wrap it up by ninety seven in order for that story structure to work for the celebration issue of one hundred. Yeah, and then Roy Thomas's run ends with 104, and Engelhart takes over with 105. Okay, so we are really are right at the end of his run. But but man, with the Vision and Ultron saga of the 50s and 60s issue count, and this storyline here, you have two really huge crowning achievements in Roy Thomas's Avengers. The whole run is is really rather good after around the, the late 40s, around 47. It's really rather good, but the but these two stories have been, you know, major elements. But we get Vision and Scarlet Witch in this storyline, and that, that's the dynamic that I really, really like. This lays the groundwork for so much. Not only is it entertaining on this time through, but as we said, this was the first time they explicitly said, yeah, the Vision and Scarlet Witch are heading in that direction. Without this, I mean, I don't see Secret Invasion coming, which is something that we haven't talked about yet, but will. Right. In fact, you and I will be talking about that. Oh, yeah. Well, there's just so much involved in this one. Like you said, you can you can pull out multiple messages along the way, but this isn't a story that has one coherent, here's the message of the entire arc. Right. Right. There's elements to it. You know, the most common one is judge people for who they are and what they do, not by their outward appearances or their heritage. That's the most common theme. Oh, and that works both ways because you have Captain Marvel with the alien judgment but then you have rick jones from the human perspective being more than he's being judged for yeah okay so that's that works two ways yeah and you've got uh ronan being just outright amused with the fact that the vision and scarlet witch are in love with each other and yeah it just seems like a lot of these elements are just highly variable so i mean going back through it i think that's you know largely why it landed at this point in the rankings and you know why it came out this high in the 75 greatest it's not because this had some big message that was it was teaching you. This is a well-written and well-drawn, entertaining story that has had lasting repercussions. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, it's one that's easy to recommend, and I think we're going to be getting a lot more of these as we get through the top half of this list, because we are pretty much sitting right on the halfway point right now. And that's the way it should be. I mean, sure, you can question whether or not things deserve to be on the list or not, but, but certainly by the time you get to the upper end of this list, we should be getting... Um, classic after classic and awesome after awesome. Yeah, with with 75 stories chosen out of the thousands and thousands Marvel has published, most of them should be ones that we all agree are on here. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's very rare th- so far that I've come across a story and gone, why is this here? <laughs> well, the, uh, the next episode will be Thunderbolts 1, which I am so looking forward to reading because I missed that boat 
when I was not doing comics at that time, and I know why Thunderbolts one is cool. I just want I just want to read it and see what happens. Yeah, it's worth it. So uh, for those of you who are following along at home, you could find Thunderbolts one reprinted in Thunderbolts First Strikes number one, Thunderbolts Justice Like Lightning trade paperback, Thunderbolts one hundred and fifty, Classic Thunderbolts volume one, Marvel Digital Unlimited, and Comicsology. So that one is not terribly difficult to track down. If you don't know why it's on the list, do not find out. Yeah. This is one. It's on the list because it has one of the greatest, oh my God, I just read that moments of any comic out there. So if you don't know what that is, do not find out what that is. Just go find it and read it because it does work very well. And more on that next week. So we always include some spoilers, massive spoiler warnings, because when we talk about why it's on the list, we're going to be giving away the last two pages. Right. And, and, and they were a blow away when they happened. Yeah, if you're listening to this in order, this issue ends like Alpha Flight 12 ends. <laughs> so, anyway, so, uh, John, why don't you remind people where they can find your current podcasts? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to talk about because we we're talking about an Avengers storyline. And I do an Avengers podcast with my daughter called Avengers Inspirations that uh, looks at the early adventures of the characters from the Marvel franchise of films, um, the Marvel Studios films. So all of the characters that you see on the screen... We talk about the early comics, and it's lots of fun. And my daughter's a young teen fan, and so we get to have a lot of fun with the comics. That is over at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, which you can Google that phrase, Complete Marvel Reading Order, and find the URL. And then click the Podcasts tab on that website, or just go to iTunes and search Avengers Inspirations, which you'll get to hear about all again whenever Blaine plays the trailer. All right, so, yeah, for those of you listening or reading along at home, you know what to read next. You can rate this show and everything else you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're getting it. I highly recommend it for all the podcasts you listen to. It really does help out the people who are producing them. And thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. <clears throat> Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting magic of podcasting you sure about that one well yeah because you know we're awesome like magic only without actually seeing any magical things just go with it go with it go with it okay don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show oh oh yeah okay so join lily wilson the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world mm. As her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. Sounds like the Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? 
New episodes can be found. <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!